Mac Power Users, episode 573, Rosemary Orchard Returns. Hey, everybody, it's David Sparks here, along with my friend and yours, Mr. Stephen Hackett. How are you today, Stephen? I'm good, David. How are you? I am doing well, thank you. We've had some rain in California, which is cause for celebration anytime we have rain, so we're all happy about that. And... Uh, you know, and I'm just feeling pretty good right now and real happy to have to the show. Uh, welcome back, Rosemary Orchard. Hello, and thank you for having me. Hey, Rose is, uh, I don't know, Rose, you you are more than a guest. You are a part of the team. Rose helps manage the the forums and, you know, Rose and I have the Automators podcast together. I don't know, but I felt like it's been a couple of years since you've been on the Mac Power Users and there's a whole bunch of stuff like on, on automators, we go super deep and nerdy, uh, but there's a whole bunch of stuff that's not quite as deep and nerdy, but you're doing that I wanted to share. And so we've got a fun outline and I'm really glad that you were willing to come on the show today. Well, uh, I, you, you sort of sent me a vague outline and then I filled it in and then I kept filling it in and I, I realized that there's a lot of detail here. So Steven's going to help us uh, dig through the weeds and pick <laughs> out what's really interesting, I'm sure. For yeah. our show. For, no, yeah. And we're and we're all kind of going through this weird transition with the Apple Silicon, and it's always fun to talk to smart and interesting people as they're dealing with it as well to hear how they're doing that. Um, one other thing, Rose, uh, since we had you last on the show, you have got several podcasts now. You've got the automators that you do with me on Relay FM. You've got Nested Folders, and uh, which is kind of your productivity show. Mm-hmm. And then you're also on Twit now, right? Yeah, yeah. I just joined Micah Sargent and we're doing iOS Today every week on the Twin Network, which is great fun. Yeah, we'll have links for that stuff in the show notes. But um, since we last talked, you've moved continent. Well, I guess you haven't moved continent, but you've moved to a little island off the continent. Um, And uh, you've got your own place and you've been setting up and um, you keep sending me these random pictures of home kit gear. Uh, Let's check in on Rose's setup. What What do you got on your desk these days? Well, uh, on my desk right here in front of me, aside from the small stack of field notes notebooks um, and a, a multitude of pens, because apparently that's that's a thing now, I have a, an Intel Mac Mini, um, and uh, it's it's not an M1. I considered it, but I decided that I'm probably going to hold off for M2 generally, um, because my machines uh, are working really, really well, and also I have bragging rights. Stephen Hackett upgraded my RAM at Mac stock for me. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> in front of a lot of people. Yes. Yes. This is the day after you took the screen off of a, an iMac for somebody to upgrade the uh, diffusion drive for them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was quite the trip. It was really fun watching Steven do that because, like, he started out with, like, yeah, I could do that and kind of excited to do a repair. And then he realized that everybody was eating plates of spaghetti around him. And that it wasn't exactly a clean environment, and and then as he started pulling pieces out of these computers, you could see the worry. What if it doesn't work? <laughs> <laughs> Although I have to say, Stephen, you really took that on. We were in line for lunch, and somebody said, "Does anyone know how to pull off the screen of an iMac and replace a hard drive?" And you jumped like a fireman. I've never seen anybody go at something so fast. 
Yes, I distinctly remember sitting there watching you uh, suction cup the screen off of this iMac and I'm there going, oh gosh, this is quite a scary thing. And I was there going, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to manage this RAM upgrade on my Mac mini on my own. But after watching you do that, I was there going, oh, okay, I'm sure I could do it. And then uh, fortunately, you were very generous and offered to, to help me out there. I'd already bought the RAM and everything. Uh, and I had the Mac mini uh, sent to me because I, I got it while I was in the US for Mac stock. Um, and uh, that worked out really well. But uh, yeah, I've got that Mac mini connected to a 34 inch ultra widescreen monitor uh, at the moment, which is working really well for me. I've got a curved monitor from LG. Um, and I find this is better than multiple screens just because I have content directly in front of me and it's a very small head swivel left and right to see other things which means for example we're recording right now and I've got Skype open to make sure you know that uh, if I needed to send you any links or anything I could do that I've got audio hijack and I've got the show notes open so I can see all three things without you know moving my head more than a minuscule amount which is also really handy if you're recording because you know if you if you start looking way off to the side then you know your voice changes on the microphone (laughs) I, I think um, you're our first guest to be sporting an ultra-wide monitor. And for listeners who haven't seen these, it's the height of a normal monitor, but it's ultra-wide. You know, it, like, so some of them are so wide that they actually curve around a bit, like Rose's mm-hmm. does. Yeah. Um, but they're a, it's a really interesting take. Rather than, like, just a big monitor like the Pro Display XDR, this one takes the approach of being kind of a standard-sized monitor, but... Like it has wings on the sides, but there's no barrier, you know. So it, it really does replace the concept of a traditional size set of two monitors next to each other without that big black line in the middle. And so how does the Mac OS drive that? And have you had any problems with like getting it set up or keeping it running? I mean, I've had no issues with this at all. So I started out with a flat screen, one of these at work, which work bought for me because I had a MacBook Adorable, the 12-inch model, one of the, I think it was a 2016 model or something. It's not a particularly powerful machine. And for those people who remember, it had one port, which meant that you couldn't, unless you bought, you know, some some kind of special dock, uh, Thunderbolt, which... were difficult to come by, it wouldn't support two monitors. It would only support one. And this was my only work machine for quite some time. Um, And so I twisted some arms, fluttered some eyelashes and begged uh, repeatedly for quite some time until they caved and got me the 34-inch ultra-wide monitor that I was after. And that was a flat one. But it works on the MacBook Adorable surprisingly well. Um, And so obviously an Intel Mac Mini is not going to have a problem with that. the only thing is, of course, Mac OS is built in, um, you know, full screen on, on a 34-inch ultra-wide screen, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, monitor. It's very easy way to lose buttons and end up with a lot of white space, uh, especially yeah. something like pages. If, you're, if you've got one page per view, you, you've got a lot of blank space on that site, which can be good for focus. But I usually use something like Better Touch Tool to, uh, to split up my, my, my screen into vertical thirds so that I can actually, you know, see multiple things at the same time, which works really well for me. I want to uh, take that apart a bit, but before we do, uh, you, so you've now owned a curved and a flat super widescreen monitor. Yeah, yeah. What are the differences and what do you recommend? Well, I think it very much depends. Um, so if you are also going to be using a monitor for gaming, then you need to be really careful both with the ultra wide and with the curved because... Ultra wide blocks a large portion of your field of view, 
and games artificially um, sort of fuzz out the corners of your screen because those would usually be furthest from you know from your from your view. So if you're looking at the center of the screen, if you look at the center of anything, then usually the edges and the corners are a bit out of focus. But a curved monitor, of course, brings those corners closer to you, so they shouldn't be out of focus. And if it's really wide, it'll block your field of view, and that means that a lot of people get motion sick um, if they're trying to do something like gaming on a really you know big screen. I personally don't game anymore, really. Uh, I mean, I've got a Nintendo Switch, but I play that on my television, which is also a large display, but it's considerably further away from me. Um, And so I've not had issues with that. But then again, I'm sitting here and I'm screencasting, which works really well because getting that full timeline across the whole width of the screen, that's just great. Um, uh, And then um, I'm also, you know, writing and podcasting, which, you know, works really, really well. So I've had zero issues with macOS and and the display. Um, it's, it's just, you know, I've, I've encountered other people who have had issues with the display, but that seems to be what they're doing with it specifically. Yeah, but what about the curved versus flat debate? Do you have any preference that, now that you've used both? I mean, I personally feel the curved is better. It's not a big curve. So if you just look at the two of them, then, you know, you'll see that they're very similar. Um, but one of the stories behind this monitor is I uh, came back to the UK at the beginning of lockdown last March. Uh, so, you know, coming up 10 months ago now. Um, and, it, you know, I came over with my work 12-inch MacBook, MacBook and uh, my MacBook Air. Um, and I thought I was going to be here for a weekend to just get the ball rolling on moving countries. And I was still here six months later. Uh, because, you know, the world locked down and I couldn't travel anymore and I couldn't really justify traveling. Technically, I could probably have made it, but it would have been tricky and it didn't feel like a smart thing to do. So I went on Amazon and looked for a monitor and I knew I wanted ultra wide and there weren't a whole lot of choices out there because, of course, everybody was buying, you know, printers, web cameras, monitors, um, keyboards and mice. So nothing was available. And this was one of the few screens that was available with a short delivery window. Um, and it was a reasonable price and I didn't really have a, a, you know, a a ball in either court going, yeah, I want curved or I really want flat. And so I just thought, you know what, I'll get curved. And if I hate it, then I'll have to try and figure out some kind of other monitor somehow. Um, but fortunately I like it. It works really well for me, but the curve isn't huge. So, you know, some people will probably not notice a difference. I find it's slightly easier on my neck when I'm, when I'm sibling a little bit from side to side, it's, it's easier to see what's on the left and the right side of my screen. And then Rosemary Orchard, a legendary automator. Um, I have never asked you, and I'm super curious, how do you manage all those windows on so much real estate? Well, uh, pretty much better touch tool. Uh, so it has these drag zones where if you drag a window into a specific zone, um, so when you start dragging a window, it'll pop up your drag zones and then you can drop it into that little you know square that you've mapped out before and then it will resize a window based on that. So I have a couple of, of, of these on my screen. Um, I'm using the standard drag it to the top to make it the whole width of the screen. Very rarely use that. Or drag it to the left to put it on the left half, drag it to the right to put it on the right half. Uh, the right is where my doc lives. Sorry, Stephen, I know you're a doc on the left person. Uh, no, 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 but- doc on the right is correct. <laughs> oh, okay, good, good. Sorry. I, I thought I'd had a discussion with somebody before who was saying, it might have been Dr. Drang who was saying that. Um, but yes, a dock on the side, definitely on an ultra wide monitor because you've got way more width than you've got height. Right. But then yeah. at the bottom, 
um, approximately uh, one third of the way across the screen, I've got a box. And then uh, two thirds of the way across the screen, you know, this is going from left to right, there's another box. And then smack bang in the middle, uh, which is a very, it's it's a shallower box that I've got just a, a long rectangle. And then if I drag it into the long rectangle, it does the middle third. If I drag it onto the, the, the right square, it does right third, left square is left third. And then at the top in the middle, uh, I have another box, which is in the middle, but per about 50% of the width of my monitor. Um, and so that means that I've got, you know, something's focused and I can still have narrow things down the side. Um, you know, this would be for things like a Skype window usually or something like that. Um, but yeah, that that's pretty much how I'm managing my uh, my windows. One of the best things that happened to the Mac community was a few years ago when Better Touch Tools developer made enough money off the app to start working on it full time. Because mm -hmm. he keeps adding these crazy features like the the customizable droppable windows that Rose is talking about. That I mean, you think that it's just the basic feature the first time you use it, but then once you dig in, you can do anything with it. Yeah, it's yeah, great. you really can. Well, I know one thing people have a tendency to to talk about in the Mac community is the resolution of such big displays. Right? There's mm -hmm. an LG out now that's thirty one and a half inches but it's only 4K and people right. think that's not dense enough. Uh, has that has that density been an issue with your setup and the way you like to work? I mean, I've got uh, 3,440 pixels wide by I think 1,440 high or something something along those lines. It's, it's also an LG and it's a 34, I think it's 34 and a half inches or 34 inches. Um, so it's not 4K. Um, it's not 5k, but at the same time, uh, I don't want my monitor right in front of my nose. Um, and the higher the resolution, then usually the smaller the font you end up with. And that's one of the things I struggle with on Mac OS. You can, you can make everything bigger, but you can't just make text bigger. Um, so I have to be careful where I position my monitor. And for me, the resolution that I've got and the standard font sizes works really well. And I can see everything, assuming I'm actually wearing my glasses or contact lenses, of course. Um, if I'm not, then, you know, it gets a bit trickier. Um, but, uh, yeah, so this works really well for me. Um, I, you know, I've never had a 4k display. I've got retina displays built into my MacBook Air and so on, but, um, you know, I've, they're, they're also displays that are a lot closer to me when I use them. So, yeah, um, I've been rent ruined by the 5K display that Apple makes. So it's really hard for me. I, when I look at a, even a 4K display, which is considered very high resolution, um, I notice the pixels immediately. But I mean, so many of those 4K displays are all about refresh rate because of gamers. You know, they want to have a high refresh rate where the Apple kind of ignores that entirely. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if Apple should make more than one display. You think? <laughs> I mean that that's just a dangerous idea, Stephen. Where did you come up with that? I know. Uh, so let's move into some of your your other gear. You, you're saying you've got a, a Mac Mini on the desk. You do obviously a lot of audio recording. You also do some screencasting and other things. What tools are you using for that type of work? Uh, well, I'm using the Shure 87A XLR microphone. Good um, choice. Yeah, that's uh, thanks to a recommendation. I think it was you and Marco Arman in, in the Relay Slack who who told me, just buy this and you'll be happy with it. So I'm enjoying it. It works really well for me. Uh, and I've connected that to a Focusrite XLR interface. Uh, I did have a brief fling with uh, a, a, another one, but uh, it just did not work out for me. It was producing really quiet audio and just generally not working. And then the entire thing failed, which was just 
embarrassing and, and they're about to record a podcast and it's literally outputting no audio and so I'm running around looking for my my backup microphone which is a, a Samsung uh, Q2U it's the same as the um, what is it Audio Technica AT2100 mm. yeah um, yeah so that that's my backup microphone which as a podcaster I feel it's a good idea to have a backup microphone just in case that's the only time I've needed to use it and it was the XLR interface that was the problem not the microphone so uh, <laughs> yeah I got off lucky there yeah, so I use those two for the audio, and then for for video, uh, I'm I'm using a, a Logitech Brio, uh, which is a, a very expensive 4K web camera, uh, which I bought pre-pandemic, and uh, have been making a lot of use of because it means that people can actually see me instead of a vaguely human-shaped blob on the screen when I'm, <laughs> you know conferencing with people in the innumerable video meetings that have popped up which fortunately at one point i just stopped turning my camera on and everybody else seems to have taken that as a cue and i can now go back to doing meetings in my pajamas which is of course way better (laughs) yeah it is funny how um you know the the glaring problem of the bad laptop cameras has shown up in the last year and everybody's aware of it now but Nobody's really had time to fix it. I honestly don't know how Apple fixes it with the thin screen and those laptops, how they're ever going to get a really good camera in that without making the screen thicker. And it's hard for me to believe they'd want to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I have no idea. I know that there are a lot of uh, apps and so on out there, Ecamm Live and so on for using your iPhone as a web camera. But I yeah, I, I, I struggled to see Apple actually making the lid of a laptop any thicker. But I have no idea how they're going to fit the hardware in. You also built a Windows computer. Yes. Uh, I did not build this entirely by myself. I did have help. And I built this a couple of years ago. Um, and it, it's sitting under my desk. Uh, and I it's there in case I need Windows. Um, uh, and of course, with M1 and Apple Silicon coming, you know, boot camp will no longer be a thing in the future. But it's basically sitting here under my desk and it's got a couple of hard drives plugged into it and it's my media machine now. And it just serves up content via Plex. But uh, I, I have a feeling we may dive into this a bit later in the show. Yeah, we are definitely going to be talking about Plex later. I want to get an update from you on Plex. Um, and uh, are you using laptops at this point? Yeah, so I have a MacBook Air. Um, I originally bought this as my travel machine. Uh, the last time I was on the show, MPU Live in Chicago uh, was the time that I just bought it and was playing with it. Um, and it's a lovely rose gold color. Uh, I do not have M1 yet. Again, um, I have hardly used the MacBook Air ever since I retrieved the Mac Mini from Austria when I got all my stuff over back to the UK, um, just because I'm not traveling right now. And if I'm not traveling, then I don't really need a laptop um, because it's much more comfortable to come sit at my nice ergonomic desk with a nice comfy chair and, you know, I or stand at it and use a, a real machine and a big monitor than attempt to, you know, sit on the sofa with poor posture to do things on a MacBook Air when, you know, I could just use an iPad instead, which is a bit more comfortable. Yeah, so long as you can do it, um, the iPad is is easier to use. It, you know, there's a lot more flexibility. A Mac with a 13-inch window in the world, you know, is can sometimes be a challenge. I find myself using full screen on that way more than I would ever on your, you know, 34-inch screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Mac Mini is, as far as portable machines go, you know desktop wise it is an insanely portable desktop you can buy cases to carry them in and so on um and i have taken it places and ended up plugging it in and using it um just because it is the most powerful machine that i own you know at least on the apple side of things 
bit of a toss-up as to whether technically the Windows machine is more powerful um, because it's got an extra graphics card in, whereas this has only got integrated graphics. But it works really, really well for me. And uh, yeah, the 13-inch MacBook Air will fit on an airplane tray table. And as somebody who has previously owned a 15-inch MacBook Pro and attempted to use that on a plane, I was very lucky to have nobody sitting next to me yeah. <laughs> on that 12-hour flight. I've edited many podcasts on airplanes and a bigger notebook can be a real hassle. Yeah. I don't even think it's possible anymore with airplane, the sizes of those seats to really use a 15 inch. Mm-hmm. On long haul flights, it usually is. It's it's on the smaller planes, which are, you know, staying inside a country that you're going to struggle to get that thing out. Yeah. I was once on a plane, a short trip, and it was the person next to me bought a single seat, but should have bought two seats, you know? and um I literally wedged my computer between the person's belly and the wall of the plane. And I worked with it just kind of hanging in space. And that was a big Mac. Anymore, I just use the the, the iPad Air. I'm, I'm sorry, the Mac. I use the iPad now. Um, and then on iPads, you I always wonder about you and iPads because someone like you who writes so much automation, does a lot of work in a terminal and scripting, where does the iPad fit for you? Well, the iPad's pretty much my go-to device. So I, I, I am living the multi-pad lifestyle. Um, I have an 11-inch iPad Pro, uh, previous generation with just the one camera and the Magic Keyboard. And then I've also got an iPad Mini and a Logitech Crayon because I really like taking notes, you know, longhand. But I also like doing it digitally so I can actually pick it up later. Um, and, you know, I'm not necessarily using either of these devices for coding, though from time to time, I absolutely do. But it tends to be, you know, I'm researching something on my my iPad Pro with, you know, the keyboard and the, and, and the mouse or the trackpad built into it. And then I've got my iPad mini sitting on the table and I'm doodling or writing in it with a Logitech crayon. Um, I do love the Apple Pencil, um, especially the Gen 2 one. I, I find it's a really lovely device. But um, I wasn't about to go and buy a second Apple Pencil for the iPad Mini. And the Logitech Crayon was a bit cheaper. So uh, that worked really well. So I've got both iPads. And uh, it depends, you know, what I'm going to be doing and where I'm going. But usually if I was if I were to be leaving the house, I would throw the iPad Mini in my bag because it's great for just, you know, pulling out and reading something from Instapaper. Or if I wanted to, picking up uh, a book that I've been reading on my Kindle or something and continuing on from there. Steven, what is it with all these nerds getting an extra iPad mini? I, I don't know what is going on. There is like a, there's a fever among the Apple podcaster community. Yeah, mine's right here. <laughs> I think the size is just, is just nice and it is so portable, but you still get iPad OS, right? I mean, you can carry yeah. a big phone, but even the big phone isn't as big. And I think a lot of us are using it for exactly what Rose said, you know, reading. Yeah note-taking, that sort of thing. It's a digital notebook more than an iPad sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I particularly like that I can pick it up and hold it portrait and use two thumbs to type. Yeah. Um, and I can type pretty quickly like that. Um, if you've got very small hands, then I suspect you'd struggle. But, you know, I've got average-sized hands and it works really well for me. So I, I really love my iPad mini. I regret only getting the 16 gigabyte one thinking that I was just using it for reading and note-taking uh, because it would be great to be able to store a couple of films on there for travel. But uh, haven't got to that yet. So maybe next time. Uh, there are rumors of a new iPad mini. So we'll see. There's rumors of a new everything right now. It's crazy. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, but now your iPad Pro is the 11 inch, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'd really love a 12.9. Um, but I honestly can't really justify it. I have 
you know, a 13 inch MacBook Air. So that fills the 13 inch hole in, in the life of uh, Rosemary Orchard. Um, but it's the 12.9 inch just isn't that portable. Whereas the 11 inch, I can easily get into the majority of my handbags and the iPad mini fits in all but the absolute tiniest of my handbags, which to be fair, I struggle to fit a Mac's iPhone. Um, and honestly, the 11 inch is more portable and it's cheaper and the accessories are cheaper as well. So the magic keyboard's cheaper, for example. So it made sense to me to stay smaller. Um, and, it, you know, it's the previous generation. It's only got the one camera on the back. It's the original 11-inch iPad Pro. But it's a really great device. Um, and I have to say, you know, if I'm sitting there on the sofa and I think, oh, yeah, I just, you know, I've got this idea or I need to, you know, write this thing up, then it's a great device to pick up to do that with because the battery life on it is incredible. Um, and it, it just works really, really well. And it, it's not too big. It doesn't ever feel unwieldy and it's not heavy. Well, I mean, relatively speaking, it is, you know, compared to, say, an iPad mini. Um, but it's also got a keyboard and trackpad on it, which means I can use something like Jump Desktop if, if I do need to get back into my Mac mini or, you know, my Windows machine. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by our friends at Text Expander. Text Expander removes the repetition out of work so you can focus on what matters most. Say goodbye to things like repetitive text entry, common spelling and messaging errors, and trying to remember the right thing to say. Because when you use Text Expander, you can say the right thing in just a few keystrokes. Better than copy and paste, and better than complicated scripts and templates, Text Expander snippets allow you to maximize your time by getting rid of the repetitive things you type while still customizing and personalizing your messages. The best part is Text Expander can be used on any platform. I have it on my Macs, my iPhone, my iPad, and my PC. So take back your time in this new year and increase your productivity with Text Expander. Show listeners will get 20% off their first year by visiting textexpander.com/podcast to learn more and sign up. Once again, that's textexpander.com/podcast for 20% off your first year. So Rose, on automators, you and I often talk about Apple scripts and making really complicated, you know, shortcuts. But something I've never talked to you about and I'm kind of curious about is just the basics, like file management. How does Rosemary Orchard organize her files? I hate files. <laughs> that is the secret. I try to avoid files and actually manually managing my files as much as possible because there's just such massive room for error. Um, the number of times that I've attempted to organize things like bank statements, especially when I was applying for a mortgage last year, oh my gosh, I had so many files to juggle and uh, everything just kind of ended up getting, you know, renamed slightly wrong and so on and things weren't consistent. And so I I try to use Hazel and actually DevonThink um as much as possible. So I use DevonThink for pretty much anything that's been generated by somebody else, like a static document. So everything from the user manual for my washing machine to bank statements ends up in DevonThink. And I use Hazel to try and get things to the right places to start with so that it's it's doing things like watching my downloads folder so I can go, oh, hey, this is a bank statement. I'm going to throw it into the DevonThink watch folder so that DevonThink grabs it and does the magic on it. Um, and, you know, oh, wait, this file is ancient. Just nuke it. Um you know, or highlight it in red before it gets nuked so that I've got a, a quick chance to save it if I want to. Um, but I, I, I try to keep it as simple as possible. So that means relatively flat and wide folder structures. 
Um, so for example, in in my root folder or right at the top level of, of my user, um, on both my work and personal machines, I have a folder just called development. So this is on the same level as documents, downloads, pictures, all of that. And then inside of that, I just have all of my different development projects. Doesn't matter what language they are, you know, um, you know, if it's, you know, for this project or that project or whatever occasionally I will group things together. So if one one project has, you know, multiple components, say a server and an app um, and something else, then I might have another folder just to group all of those together. But I try to just keep everything as flat and as simple as possible. Because the last thing you want to be doing is hunting for hours for a file that you know exists, but you can't find it. Yeah, I just had an email from a listener on my paperless field guide who wanted to set up an automation to create a new folder for each month for utility bill filing, you know? So he would have, you know, utility bill slash 2021 slash zero one. And I told him that's crazy because you're not going to get that many bills. Just put them in utility bills or at worst, just put 2021. And I think that's a problem people make is you want to go as shallow as you can go, but no shallower, you know? And and that's another opportunity to use tags, honestly. The shallower you are, go, the more you can use tags. Do you use tagging at all with your file yes, management? Yes, I do. And especially in DevonThink. So I know in DevonThink I can do smart searches to find things from specific months and so on. But I have set it up to manually tag things with the year and the month as well. Um, so that then if I'm looking for everything from January 2021, I can click on 2021 in January and find everything. Or if I'm looking for January year over year, I can find that. So I can compare, you know, I, I moved in last September, so I could compare, say, last September's electricity bill with this coming September's electricity bill when I get it. Um, and I like using tags for that. And then I also have, you know, tag for bill or invoice or something like that, uh, just for the generic type of it. And yes, all of this information is in the file name. All of this information is in the metadata. But for some reason, tags just clicked in my brain for it. And so I thought, you know what? It's not going to hurt to put it in tags as well, um, because then it's all right there for me. Yeah, and, and the nice thing with both Hazel and DevonThink is they allow you to automate the tag creation, so you don't have to actually create the tags. I mean, uh, DevonThink has embedded in the app, and I should say DevonThink is a sponsor of this episode. We didn't know that when we laid this all out, but they have basically Hazel built into DevonThink. Yeah, and I, I I love the the automation aspect of that because. I found that if I set up rules, and the trick is not to set up rules way too far in advance, but set up a rule as I find, hey, my downloads folder has got five of this kind of file in it. Okay, I should automate that, set up a Hazel rule to grab those and throw it over here so that it ends up, you know, uh, in, in, in this, or maybe it gets moved into my notes folder um, so that I can easily reference it later um, and uh, so on. And I mean, for the actual storage of things, I'm, I'm pretty much using Dropbox. I, I need to pay for it for podcasting and screencasting anyway. So I have a two terabyte plan. And I figured if I'm paying for two terabytes of data, then I'm, I may as well use it. So <laughs> I just throw the vast majority of things straight into Dropbox because that way, if I do need it on another machine at any point, it's right there. And I had something I'd edited, uh, a, a script that I had saved into Zapier offline um, and I'd saved it as a as a file so that I could mess with it. Uh, and test it. And I realized that there was a flaw in my logic, um, but I'd written it on my Mac mini um, and I was officing my bubble buddy. Um, so I couldn't, you know, edit things that were on my Mac mini because my Mac mini was at home. I didn't want to remote into the Mac mini, but I could just open up the file because it was saved on Dropbox. 
Yeah. I, you know, Dropbox, it's like I have this love-hate relationship with it. They were the first like third-party cloud service. They showed the way for so many of us. But uh, just recently when I installed it on my new laptop, it you know, it feels like it's it's embedding itself into the whole operating system the way it installs itself. And that always just makes me a little bit leery. But I did an experiment last year and it failed and I'm still using Dropbox. <laughs> now, Rosemary, are you syncing your DevonThink database with Dropbox too? So you have access to it on other devices? Yes, yeah. So I do have DevonThink to go on iOS, but I have to be honest, I'm I'm rarely using it, not because it doesn't work or anything, but just because the vast majority of the time, I don't need those documents on the go. When I was buying uh, my place last year, uh, I did have moments where the the solicitor that's a lawyer over here would call me and say oh you need this and you know i'd left my laptop upstairs but i have my ipad and my iphone there so i was able to just pull up the documents and send it off so i love the fact that it's everywhere but i tend not to really open it on my iphone or ipad just because i don't need to so so you have a, a devon think heavy system for your files what are your devon think vaults to the extent you're comfortable sharing them well uh i started out thinking that I was going to need lots and lots of vaults. And I've ended up with grand total of two, uh, which is personal sure. and work. And work I'm syncing through uh, OwnCloud, which we have at work. So that's a, a web dev system, which actually lends itself really well to a lot of different systems because it's surprisingly accessible, uh, even though obviously it's hosted on site and everything. So I don't need to worry about you know uh, privacy and so on because that's all managed through work directly. The, um, I know you've also been dipping your toes in the world of personal knowledge management. That kind of relates to your filing system. Uh, we've talked about a lot of apps. Which one have you hooked into? Well, uh, I, I mean, I start usually with drafts because I just write everything in drafts and then I send it off. Um, and I have settled for the time being on Obsidian on Mac OS and OneWriter on iOS. Uh, because, uh, well, Obsidian on the Mac, you just pointed at a folder and it doesn't care where the folder is. So that works perfectly with Dropbox and uh, OwnCloud. And OneWriter supports both of those as well, which means that I can hook into both uh, my my personal and my work systems uh, in the same app. So I, ne- I don't need to think about which app I'm using. Uh, I just open it and I, I've got all of my, my personal knowledge notes right there. Yeah, I, I would add to that. We've talked about Obsidian recently. I'm I'm a fan of the app. I use it as well. But I have now paid for their end-to-end encryption solution. So uh, my data is very secure, but it is not available to third-party apps on iOS. So I cannot access it mobily, but I have end-to-end encryption between Macs. And that's the trade-off I'm making because some of the stuff I'm doing really needs to be secret. But uh, I believe um, their uh, their timeline, their project timeline shows that they're now actively working on mobile apps. So hopefully we'll have access to Obsidian data on mobile soon. Yes, hopefully. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what they come up there with their, with their iOS app. Because, uh, I mean, I love the Mac app and I love things like the autocomplete. When you type two square open brackets, it suggests all of the notes that you've gotten as you start typing autocompletes and things like that. That works really well for me. What kind of data are you putting in there? I mean, what do you use it for? Well, I started by looking at, you know, what kind of things did I keep in drafts, but I wasn't really necessarily happy with having in drafts, not because drafts wasn't working, but just because, it, you know, it, it didn't really feel like it, ha- it was a good home for these things. So I've got long running lists of, you know, things like post or podcast ideas, uh, stuff I'd like to do home automation wise, films to watch, TV shows to watch, books to read, um, random project ideas um of of stuff that's 
you know, pops up and it seems like a good idea. And then, you know, notes of uh, related to any links on things like that. Um, and some of these notes are really, really short and sort of vague, like Dungeons and Dragons Game Master. Look <laughs> at the Sly Flourish books with a link um, and things like that. But it, the idea is then if I, you know, they're they're kind of related to someday maybe tasks in the sense of, you know, if I come back to, you know, the idea of running uh, a Dungeons and Dragons campaign, um, then I, I can go look for my notes on that and then find it. Or if somebody else asks me, oh, hey, do you have any resources on this? Then I can share it with them. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, yeah, some of it's, some of it's very much reference or some of it could possibly be considered a someday maybe task. Yeah. I really find drafts and obsidian together, kind of one of those peanut butter chocolate mixings, you know, it just works so well together, um, because drafts has all this great automation to, to write things, but you can save it, uh, anywhere on your drive. So you yeah. can save directly to your obsidian library from a drafts note and, I find the the reference stuff in the Obsidian a little better than it works in drafts, but the creation much better in drafts. So I, I find it's almost like one app to me in my head at this point. I find that they're very complementary. Um, and, you know, I, I start most things in drafts. It's the double it's double back tap on my iPhone that it just opens a, a new draft for me so that I can easily capture whatever it is and then figure out, okay, so yes, this is most definitely a task. It's going in OmniFocus or no, this is, this is a note of, you know, stuff that I might want to think about it in the future. Okay, I'm going to send that off to, to Obsidian um, and wherever that folder is. So uh, drafts also supports WebDAV, which means I can save my notes off. I have custom actions to save into a certain folder in Dropbox or a certain folder in OwnCloud, depending on which action I tap on. There's some listeners that are not going to know what you meant by bu- double tap back drafts. Explain that real <laughs> quick. Well, there is an accessibility feature on iPhone, which was added uh, with iOS 14. Um, and if you go into, I'm just double checking, it's settings and accessibility. And it's the touch options right at the bottom. There's double tap. And this can do all sorts of things. It could open the camera, turn on the flashlight, things like that, or it can run a shortcut. And so I've set it up to run a shortcut, which is just new draft. Um, And it's just a one action shortcut, which is new draft. Um, And so it always opens drafts for me whenever I double tap the back of my iPhone. Uh, And the trick for this that I found is you don't want to be double tapping the bottom of your iPhone. You want to tap about where the Apple logo is. If you double tap where the Apple logo is, it works every time. To start with, I was trying to tap near the camera or the bottom of the iPhone. That wasn't working for me. Uh, And then I realized if you tap on the Apple logo, it works every time. So that's a lot of stuff about notes that that you need for for what you're doing. Would uh, you have notes that you need to collaborate with other people on, or is that sort of a different type of of content, if you will? Technically, they are notes. Uh, I use the notes application uh, with Scotty for nested folders for doing podcast planning, um, but. Um, most of the time, I don't necessarily share notes in this format. So anything that has to be shared at work, for example, has to go into the wiki. Um, and then everybody can see it and edit it themselves, comment on it, etc. Um, and for something where, I'm, for example, planning an episode of Automators with David, then we have an automation system set up, which automatically creates the show notes for us. Uh, through Zapier, and then that's in in Google Docs. So I'm using you know Google Docs um, and Google Sheets for iOS today, and and Notes as well as these. Um, but that's that's just for the things which are are shared with other people. Yeah. What's the problem with file management that you're currently facing that you haven't solved yet? Uh, I keep getting given files, and I don't want them. 
and I would like them to go away. That's that's the problem I'm trying to solve. So I I end up having to download things um, and it's, you know, a zip file or something. And I just need to figure out a way of automatically recognizing that, hey, all of these videos that I airdropped from my iPhone to my Mac have been used in the latest Screencast Online video. So I can nuke all of them at once, but they end up in the downloads folder because that's where airdrop puts them. Um, And I've not yet figured out a hazel rule that goes, hey, this show is published and these, these, these videos or these files were related to that. So get rid of them for me. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to figure out how I should clear out my downloads folder 100% automatically, uh, which is probably an impossible problem. But I'm, I'm every time I, I look at it, I go, okay, well, you know, this is something that I can tackle and I'm just trying to pick it off, you know, a file type or categorization at a time. I actually kind of have a solution to that. I use a um, a red flag on documents that get immediately nuked from space by Hazel, and I because I solved the, I have the same problem with screencast generation, and uh, I can apply that tag manually, but I can also apply that tag automatically. We're going to have to we'll go into deep on that problem on automators at some point, but I actually rarely have an opportunity to help Rosemary Orchard with some automation. <laughs> You should see opposite. <laughs> well, it's teamwork, David. <laughs> this episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Pingdom. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM and use offer code MPU to get 30% off. While you've been listening to this podcast, how would you know if your website had gone down? Would you know if customers didn't click the buy now button or access your content? You might stumble across the problem by luck, but that's no good. You need a system. You need something to tell you everything is running smoothly on your site, and more importantly, when it's not. You need Pingdom. Pingdom detects around 13 million outages every month. That's more than 400,000 outages every day. Pingdom helps you keep your sites and the sites you love online. It doesn't matter if you're a startup or a Fortune 500 company. You need alerts about any critical website issues. Pingdom will let you customize how you're alerted depending on the severity of the outage. Plus, they'll track and analyze your website's load time so you can see what's affecting the user experience. If you have a site of any size, you need Pingdom, and Pingdom has a no-fuss approach to getting started. All they need is the URL you want to monitor, and they'll take care of the rest. Go to pingdom.com RelayFM right now for a 30-day free trial with no credit card required. And then when you sign up, use the offer code MPU at checkout to get a huge 30% off your first invoice. Thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of the Mac Power users and all of RelayFM. So we mentioned Plex uh, a few minutes ago. For those who aren't familiar, it is a home media server and player it is a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing with it and how it works. Well, it started with, uh, there's a pandemic and my grandmother, um, she broke her hip again um, a couple of years ago and she's been struggling to kneel down to put DVDs in the DVD player. Uh, and so the request was, can you sort something out so that she can easily watch DVDs without using the DVD player? Because it's a bit fiddly. Um, and so I, I had a couple of ideas and the first thing I did was buy a fire stick, sign her into my Netflix and Disney plus account and just, you know, have it handed off to her, um, so that, you know, she could at least watch 
those things um, straight off the bat. But she had these DVDs and it's it's things like old musicals and stuff like that, which, you know, are more difficult to find on streaming services and they hop between streaming services. So what I, I did is I, I started by looking for solutions and I'd had a couple of things set up. I have I gave my parents the Synology for Christmas uh, a couple of years ago, which works really well. And it serves up some media to them at home, which they're watching through an app called Infuse, which is a great system, but it only works locally. And the problem was that I needed this to be available, not just locally, but also, you know, to my grandmother so that I could manage it for her. You know, these are her DVDs, but, you know, I needed to be able to manage it and then she could just watch it without, you know, too much fiddling around. Um, and I'd already heard of Plex and, you know, given it a, a whirl a couple of times, but I'd never really had the time to sit down and sort it all out. Um, and so I decided to make it one of my lockdown projects where I just set up Plex. I started by doing it on a Raspberry Pi. Turned out to not be a great decision because uh, some of the media that I had ripped a while ago um, needed to be transcoded, which basically means it needs to be, you know, re-encoded on the fly as you're watching it. Um, and the Raspberry Pi is just not powerful enough to handle that. So I got out the Windows machine, which used to be a gaming machine, has a great graphics card in it and works really, really well for uh, transcoding video on the fly for Plex, which is brilliant. So then I, I, you know, had to sit down and start figuring out, okay, my grandmother has passed on a literal crate load of DVDs. Uh, What of these do I already have that I've ripped myself? Um, And uh, what do I need to go through and sort out? So I had to start figuring out where do I get started with all of this, which was definitely a little bit of a challenge. So you took all of that media and ingested it, ripped it to, uh, what is it, QuickTime files? Like what, what's the next step from being able to stream it, uh, but I'm here sitting here with a box of DVDs? Yeah, so the the first trick is figuring out how to get a, a the DVD into a digital file on your Mac. Um, and there is a great application called Make MKV, uh, which creates MKV files, which can be played back in QuickTime. Um, and this works really, really well, but it also creates very large files, which you can keep as they are. Um, but for example, uh, an episode, an hour and a half episode of something would be around about four gigabytes, maybe five. Um, and that's quite a lot for standard definition. This isn't Blu-rays. I just bought a cheap USB DVD player from Amazon because there there were no Blu-rays in this crate. Uh, she didn't have a Blu-ray player, fortunately. Um, and this was less than twenty dollars, so it's a very cheap DVD player. Um, and so I had to to figure that out. Uh, and a friend of mine, uh, Chris, actually pointed me in the direction of Dom Melton's Transcode video. Uh, which uh, is on, uh, it's it's available on GitHub. It's a repository which walks you through how to transcode video. Um, so I, I'm i using that and it takes a four gigabyte file and turns it into a 1.5 gigabyte file, um, which is, you know, a considerable space saving. Um, and these are still good resolution for standard definition. Um, uh, but um, and he, there's a whole thing on the on the page, which I'm hoping we can put a link to in the show notes, um, where you know they they walk through the pluses and the minuses of you know what you can do and how you can do it. I'm just using the transcode video option pretty much as standard with the modifiers for no log file because I don't need log files generated, um, and uh, quick because I'd like it to be as fast as possible. Um, and I am usually doing this on my Mac Mini, though obviously not while I'm recording a podcast. And Don Melton was one of the original developers of Safari at Apple and a very clever guy. So 
I'm sure that his application is going to run just fine. Yeah. And if you're not familiar with the command line or you don't really want a command line program, Handbrake uh, still exists. Uh, it's handbrake.fr. Uh, and that works really well as well. But uh, I, I knew that Transcode Video would be faster. Um, and uh, I needed to get uh, a good chunk of these files done at speed just because, you know, my grandmother was sitting at home on her own. She lives alone. Uh, it was a lot, uh, you know, lockdown. She wasn't going to see anyone for quite a while. And I thought the least I can do is, uh, you know, get, get some entertainment up and running for her as quickly as possible so that she can actually watch things and not be quite so alone. And uh, we can use the watch together feature as well. So where are you storing all this stuff? I mean, I guess it, it adds up after a while. Yeah. So I, I started out with uh, just the one drive and I've ended up uh, splitting things onto two drives. So I've got one drive for, for films and one drive for TV shows. Um, and I'm using uh, two applications to actually manage these. One is called Sonar with two R's at the end and one's called Radar with two R's at the end. Um, and there are some other uses uh, for for these programs, um, such as automatically uh trying to, to grab things and so on. Um, but um, I'm using these purely to just go, hey, here is, you know, look up a TV show, for example, Diagnosis Murder, uh, one that I've been working on recently. Um, and, um, you know, and then say, okay, so here are the video files, manually add those and then just rename everything and organize it for me, which works really, really well. And it means that everything is then organized. So Plex is looking and it knows that the, the film drive is all of the film library or the movie library and the TV drive is the TV shows library. Um, and it goes, okay, so now I can go in and everything's named perfectly for Plex to figure out exactly what those shows or films are, um, which is really, really good. Um, and that works really well. Um, and all of this, aside from the DVD player, was free to set up. I mean, it helped that I already had a gaming machine, but it meant that, um, you know, I could set everything up and uh, my... My grandmother, who was the one with the creative DVDs, could watch things. But then uh, my parents have also been able to pick stuff up uh, on their Apple TV. And, uh, um, you know, it works on my grandmother's Fire Stick and on her iPads because she is also living the multi-pad lifestyle. She has an iPad Air and an iPad Mini. Um, and uh, she's she's been uh, enjoying Plex a lot, apparently, which I'm really pleased about. There, there's something I love about the fact that Rosemary Orchard's grandmother has two iPads. I'm not sure what it is, but I love it. <laughs> um, now, you don't have to own a PC to do this, though. Plex is very um, platform agnostic. You know, yes. you can run it on a Mac. You can also, like, if you've got a Mac Mini sitting in a corner, you could run it off that and just hang a big hard drive off the back. Uh, you could also run it off a, um, off a off a NAS drive. They've got software for most of that stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah, so I actually ended up. Um, so I'm running Plex Media Server on my um, on my uh, Windows computer. Um, the only thing I would say is if if you're going to be sharing it with other people, so there are going to be potentially multiple streams going on at once. You probably don't want it to be a machine that you're using yourself, and you definitely don't want it to be a machine that goes to sleep because otherwise, if you put your machine to sleep while somebody's in the middle of a film, uh, they they might get a little bit put out about that. Um, but I also installed it on my parents' Synology and switched them over from using Infuse to, to Plex. And that works really well. Um, and it also means that I can, you know, easily check in whenever my dad says, hey, this episode of Dad's Army is missing. And I can look in and see, ah, yes, it was because I manually named all these files and I messed it up. And uh, and I can fix that for them. Now, wasn't there a, there used to be an app that would help you in naming and getting show art for stuff you ripped for Plex. Is that still out there? Because I, I, I haven't used it in a while. 
Yeah, so there are lots of different applications out there. Um, and um, the Filebot is quite popular for things like that. Um, but I'm using Sonar and Radar because it really does allow me to type in, say, for example, Miss Marple and choose which Miss Marple uh, I'm actually looking at our House of Cards. Am I looking at the original British uh, season or am I looking at, you know, the, the more recent one that was uh, on Netflix and uh, probably some other channel as well? Um, and so I can actually see all of that and just, you know, select the exact one that I'm after and it names things so it knows exactly what they are, you know, usually with the with the name of the year of the show or film in it. So, you know, you know, which version of Sabrina it is. Is it the one with Audrey Hepburn or or the uh, the more recent version? Now, if somebody's listening and they want to set up a Plex server, what's the gotcha that people don't realize the first time they set it up? You know, what's the easiest, most avoidable mistake? Putting your computer to sleep. <laughs> that is the easiest, most avoidable mistake. Uh, so it, you need to check the energy saver preferences to make sure hard drives do not go to sleep, um, as well as uh, the, the computer. The display can go to sleep. That's not a problem. But you do not want the hard drives or um, the actual machine to go to sleep, because if either of those go to sleep, then uh, Plex is not going to fire up. Um, and get working uh, on that. Um, or it will try and then you'll get a message back that says your server's not available. Um, the secondary mistake would probably be it not being available outside of your network. And that's something where you're going to have to probably look at your router settings. But the good news is if you have an Eero, then it should just work because mine did. Stephen, have you gone down the media server rabbit hole in the Hackett house? I haven't. I mean... By the time our second kid and definitely the third kid came along, I I used to keep up with one and I sort of just gave up and we mostly stream and we have our sort of legacy purchased iTunes media and that's shared on the network. And occasionally we'll buy a movie and, and add it to that. But this was just something that sort of fell by the wayside for me. Yeah. See, when my kids were younger, we didn't have streaming services like we do now. Like I, I think Disney Plus almost negates the need for a, a streaming server in your house if you have little kids but when my kids were little everything was dvd and we would buy these dvds and they would get peanut butter on them and it was just like always something so i started ripping all the dvds we bought and set up a server and it was great and i used plex too and that was like a long time ago and plex is I'm, i love that they're still out there and, and still delivering the goods and i'm sure it's even easier now than it was when i did it but at this point, my kids are old enough now that they don't get a movie and watch it a hundred times like little kids do. So we just mainly stream stuff and occasionally we'll buy a movie. And so it, it makes my life a lot easier, but I'm glad that for folks that want that stuff, it's out there now. Yeah. I mean, I found that the problem with streaming services is it's difficult to keep track of where things are available and some things just straight up aren't available or they're only available on services which have ads. So over here in, in the UK, there's UK TV Play, um, yeah. which has ads in. And I think I could pay a monthly subscription to remove the ads. But for the one show that I wanted to watch... I realized I could also just buy the DVD and own it forever. And DVDs are often cheaper than buying the the originals of things like older TV shows. So, for example, uh, Diagnosis Murder uh, is one. My grandmother asked if I could uh, find it um, for her. And so I went and I had a little bit of digging around and I found secondhand DVDs on eBay. Um, and that's perfect. So, you know, yeah, I had to do a bit of manual work, but it means that my entire family can now watch it, whereas we don't actually have to pass the DVDs to each other, which especially with there being a pandemic on could be a risk of, you know, transmitting, you know, 
you know, COVID, which wouldn't be great. Um, and I would much rather not give my grandmother uh, what, a potentially deadly disease or a virus right now. So, uh, yeah. And we've even been able to use, uh, they added a feature this year, Watch Together, which works the same way as Netflix, where multiple people can watch the same thing at the same time and it plays back in sync. Uh, so it's kind of like going to the cinema, but everybody's sitting at home on their own sofas. I could totally see like 30 years from now, like some grandkid of mine setting up like a Star Wars button in my wheelchair and I just sit there and I push it all day and it just feeds me Star Wars, like the crazy old man and the Jedi. I mean, if it makes that, you that's happy. in my future. Yeah. So, so it'll be Plex version 80, you know, whatever. Um, But it's out there. And like I said, it's on all platforms. And I, I think Plex is the way to go. Did you look at any of the other competitors when you were setting this up? I mean, is, is Plex the one you would recommend at this I point? I mean, Plex is definitely the one I recommend if you want to be able to watch this stuff outside of your house. If, you, if you're happy, you know, just, you know, being able to do things at home, which, you know, there is a pandemic on, I can see that, you know, definitely factoring in, then sure, you can just throw files onto network attached storage somewhere and use something like Infuse to point at that or even VLC um and, and stream things but i love the fact that plex you know it downloads the artwork and so on it's got features like shuffle it grabs subtitles and all of that stuff so that you do just it, it's like having netflix but with all of your content which if you have you know a cover full of dvds um which you know some people definitely do have um then it means that you can get all of that on your own streaming service without paying a monthly fee there is upfront work, but it works really well. And you're going to have to do that work, whatever home-built streaming solution it is that you do look at. So, uh, you know, you may as well do a little bit of tiny extra work and just go with Plex. And then you'll be able to stream wherever you are in the world when hopefully we can get back to traveling in the future. Yeah. And, and as the family nerd setting it up, Plex is not that difficult to set up. It's, it really isn't. And then for the non-nerds in your family, it's not that difficult to access. That's what I think really, I mean, it's something people would actually use. Yes, it definitely is. My parents are using it. And I mean, they told me before Christmas, oh, we don't really like automation. And then they're going, oh dear, I bought you a smart plug and um, uh, we'll choose smart plugs and a switch for Christmas. Whoops. Uh, turns out they also love that. So that's good. Um, but it's very similar to Netflix in many ways, which means that it's very easy to use. Um, and installing it, you download the package from the website, be that for Windows, Mac, or Linux. There's Synology packages, there's QNAP packages, all of that. Um, and then you just follow the instructions, you point it at the folders. And that's pretty much it. And it has troubleshooting built in. So it'll go, hey, this isn't available outside of your network. Do you want to fix that? Um, and if you want to double check that it's not, then you can connect to something, you know, a VPN and, and or just disconnect from your Wi-Fi and see if you can access it. You'll be good to go. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Indeed. Hiring is one of those things you don't want to mess up. You need to hire great people if you want to take your entire business to the next level. And with stakes this high, there's only one choice, Indeed. Indeed.com is the hiring site that helps you find quality candidates with Indeed Instant Match. Indeed searches through millions of resumes in their database to help show you great candidates instantly. So you can do the part that you really need to do faster, which is meeting and hiring great people. Unlike some hiring sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility, delivering a quality short list faster. With Indeed, there are no long-term contracts. You can pause your account at any time and only pay for what you actually need. 
With Instant Match, you see a great list of candidates right away, and Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. So if you want your short list fast, you need Indeed. Right now, listeners of the show get a free $75 credit to upgrade their job post. Just go to Indeed.com MPU. That's their best offer available anywhere. Once again, Indeed.com MPU. Get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post. Indeed.com MPU. This offer is valid through March 31st and terms and conditions apply. Our thanks to Indeed for the support of the show and Relay FM. Yeah, Rose, you, I happen to know that you make a whole podcast about automation. And uh, <laughs> as, as, as your friend and someone who talks to you regularly, I am constantly amazed and admiring the way you find ways to usefully use automation in your life. And if you're listening to this and you have any interest in this, I really recommend you listen to the podcast Rose and I make on, on Relay FM, The Automators. But some folks, you know, they, they're they're automation curious. And I thought it'd be fun to just take a minute to talk to someone with, as experienced as you are about, you know, how, how did you get into automation? And, and, you know, what are some ways people could try to, like, step down that road if they were interested? Well, uh, I ended up getting a job as a developer because I was too lazy to do part of my job. So I automated it. Um, so a little bit of backstory. Uh, we had to, we, I worked in the service center um, of an IT department um, at the university and, you know, we were receiving packages on behalf of other staff members. And then we had to write the, manually write the package number into a book along with the details and then go and email somebody. And I, I looked at that and did it for about two weeks before going, you know, how much is a USB barcode scanner? And can I write a web application that will do all of this for me? Um, so that's, you know, how I got started with an actual big automation project. But before that, there was this application called Workflow, which was made by these guys who used to be iOS jailbreakers back in the day. And now it's called Shortcuts and Apple bought it because it's that amazing. But uh, there's a subreddit for it. And there was a subreddit for Workflow back in the day where people would post, you know, questions of how I can do this. Um, and I would just, you know, take 10, 15 minutes a day and see if I could solve these problems for people, which taught me all about a lot of different things, you know, loops, repeats, things like that. Um, and it was really interesting to do it. It's, you know, some people do Sudoku. I build automations because it's fun and it solves a problem and it exercises my brain. Um, and uh, there are a lot of ways that you can you can use automation in your daily life or not so daily life. Um, and it genuinely does make my life much easier, but it also makes my life much more consistent, which is usually the key that I'm aiming for with automation. That's so interesting to me that your gateway drug was the iPhone and workflow. I just assumed it was something farther back. Nope. Nope. It was the iPhone and workflow. I, I just switched from being a full-time uh, traveling English teacher, which was great fun, but there, there was a lot of stress involved with it because I was literally teaching in a new school every single week, if not two schools a week, um, and traveling hundreds of miles, um, you know, on a regular basis. And it was very stressful. So I decided that I wanted to switch um, to something else and that I liked computers. And so I was going to try to learn programming. So I started studying 
in Austria because it was very cheap. It was about 20 euros a semester to study for a bachelor's degree. And I thought, well, even if I don't do very well, you know, I'll be learning something and it's very affordable. And so as I was commuting to my lectures, I was checking out the workflow subreddit and having a look to see what uh, problems I could solve, thinking that it would be interesting and surprising how much you can take from regular programming and apply to shortcuts and vice versa, because obviously it was written by programmers for people to program the iPhone with. I'm sorry. I think all Americans didn't hear anything you said after 20 euros a semester. I'm pretty sure (laughs) we all just, our hearts sank. Well, I, I, I'm I'm sad to inform you that the price has gone up. I think it's about 200 euros a semester now. But oh, it's 200. Still, that's that's horrible. Crushing debt. I, I know. It's very expensive. Um, yes. Uh, darn socialists. Uh, except they're not. But, you know, it, it's, uh, yeah. It, the university systems in Europe are generally a lot cheaper than they are in the US. Um, even my university degree in, here in the UK, my first one, was around about £3,300 a year. And nowadays it's £9,000 a year, which is much closer to on par with, I think, your average college in the US. I know some colleges yeah. are insanely expensive there. So if someone's listening and they want to get started, where would you send them? I would say... If you've got an iPhone, shortcuts. If you've got a Mac, keyboard maestro. And I I say this with a little bit of a caveat because keyboard maestro is perhaps a bit more challenging than shortcuts. But for example, shortcuts, I would suggest that people open the gallery on their iPhone because as well as suggested shortcuts, nowadays there are suggested automations. For example, open this application at nine o'clock in the morning. Um, because, you know, it, it sees that you frequently open that application at nine o'clock in the morning or check your schedule at 7 p.m. Uh, because they notice that you frequently open Fantastical and Fantastical suggested that it, you're checking your schedule. Um, and that is a great way to get started because you don't actually need to do anything. Keyboard Maestro, a bit trickier. Um, and, um, you know, just because it's been around for longer, uh, actions that have one name in shortcuts have a different name in Keyboard Maestro. But a lot of the things that you would want to do can be done in Keyboard Maestro. And there's an amazing support forum with some really lovely people and lots of examples in. And uh, that's the key, both of both Shortcuts and Keyboard Maestro. There's so much that you can just steal. Um, and that's the beauty of automation. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. Take what other people have done. If you're looking to automate text, obviously I'm going to say drafts because there's you know a forum and an action directory where you can just download so many actions and do everything i mean i'm constantly building new drafts actions and action groups because it genuinely makes my life so much easier i am constantly intending to build new action groups and every time i do i find that somebody else has already made it so it's even easier yep just take what other people have done because you don't need to create everything yourself that's the beauty of automation let somebody else do the hard work and I almost take issue a little bit with the word stealing because you're not stealing and you're just downloading an existing program and, and looking at it, and then you start making changes to it. And before you know it, you've got something that you can share back to the world. I, I just say pay it forward. If you come up with a cool solution to a problem, share it so other people can pick up where you left off. Yes, definitely. And I mean, it, it's not stealing if people are putting it up there to to freely share. Um, and there are lots of wonderful people out there who've been making a lot of great automations that you can use. Um, and, you know, if you look in the action directory for drafts, um, I've got an action group in there called OF Task Paper, which is OmniFocus Task Paper, which is designed to help you create 
task paper templates, which you can then use in OmniFocus. Um, and so many people have taken that and done other great things with it. And I love that they've done that. And I'm really happy they have. And I'm sure everybody who's created actions and put them in the action directory for drafts feels the same way with, where other people have, you know, taken it and made something else from it. And those people who share shortcuts have done are, feel exactly the same as well. Now, you uh, recently made a simple shortcut that I thought would be fun to share um, concerning medication. You want to share that? Yeah. So I recently had a bit of a cold and, and, and an ear infection and so on. And so I was having to take uh, paracetamol or Tylenol for the Americans on a regular basis, you know, sort of every four hours-ish. Um, and so I realized that what I needed, first of all, was um, to, to lock my symptoms. And I did that with one shortcut. But then I wanted to just run a shortcut that said, okay, when did you take this? Um, and then give me a notification 15 minutes after that to let me know that this is kicking in. And then another notification four hours later to say you can take more. Not that you should take more, but you can take more so that, you know, I could make a judgment call later. Um, and so I've set it up um, and the whole thing is uh, five actions. Um, so it starts with an ask for input and it asks me when did I take the paracetamol or Tylenol? And then it uses uh, an adjust date action uh, to adjust that and add 15 minutes to it. And then it adds a reminder. Um, and then it grabs the original time, the time that I said that I, I took it, um, and then it adjusts that and adds four hours to it and then adds another reminder. And that's it. Uh, it works very, very simply. But when you're there and you're, you're, you've got a head cold and you've got stuffed up noses and headaches and you're just feeling, oh, and you need to be able to have a reminder that says when you can take more medication, this is so much you know, it just helped so much because it meant that I could just press the button, you know, take the tablets, press the button. And then, you know, it would tell me, you know, after 15 minutes, hey, this is kicking in now. How are you feeling? And then I could go, you know what? Actually, I'm starting to feel a bit better. I'm going to log my symptoms again in the health app. Um, but, you know, you don't have to. But it was just giving me, you know, prompts to do so nicely. Yeah. And and Rose, if with Rose's permission, we're going to put a link for this shortcut in the show notes. So you can just download it to your device. The one caveat there is that you need to enable your device to install third party shortcuts. Apple, for whatever reason, makes it when you download these links that they, they give you a dialog box. It sounds like you're installing a virus on your phone. I don't know why they're so <laughs> draconian with that language, but you've got to turn something off for it. But you can do it in the shortcuts preferences and and try this out. It kind of gets you started. But there, there's just so many ways you can go down this road. And and I think Rose does such a great job of making it easy for people. Um, we talk about this stuff also on the shortcut on the Automator podcast. So if this is your your jam, go check it out. There's a whole bunch of stuff there. We do that every two weeks. Um, but the other thing Rose has done now that you've got your own place and gang, Rose is brutal to me she sends me pictures like every week or two of just a stack of home kit gear i've <laughs> i have never done had that anyone. in at least a month david come on i mean i've just never had anyone that does because like i have a whole family i install like a wall switch we have to have like a family meeting to make sure that i'm not making anybody's life too crazy but rose is you know she's on her own so she she can go crazy and she just sends me pictures literally of stacks of home kit stuff <laughs> um, in her apartment or her house now. Um, so give us a, a few of your cool tricks that you're doing at the house with the home kids stuff, Rose. Well, my re most recent addition is actually not directly home kit, but the company have taken an interesting approach. For some reason, they're not doing home kit directly, but they've built a home bridge plugin. Um, <laughs> but this is SwitchBot and SwitchBot 
curtains. So switch bolt curtains are motors that open and close your curtains for you. Um, and there are very few things out there on the market for um, automating curtain opening and closing, at least over here in the UK. Um, and SwitchBot is one of the few, and they've actually got their own Homebridge plugin, which means that I actually have these in the home app so that when you know the sun sets, as well as my IKEA blinds closing, my curtains also close, which is brilliant because then, you know, I actually have all the curtains and everything closed, and I don't need to go around and double check that, you know, they're all closed. They're they are. It just happens. Um, and yes, I hear the motors going and everything, but it means that if I'm happily cuddled up on the sofa with a pile of blankets, um, enjoying an episode of Castle or whatever it is that I'm currently watching, I don't need to worry about making sure all the curtains are closed. So, and then when I walk into the room later and my motion sensors see me and turn on the lights, then you know I know that people outside aren't going to be able to look straight in because my blinds and my curtains are closed. I just feel like Rosa's house is inevitably going to become like a James Bond villain lair. I mean, <laughs> she's going to push a button and there'll be like a pond with piranhas in it next to the front door or something. How does a curtain automation device even work? I mean, what? Because I'm presuming it, you didn't buy curtains from SwitchBot. No. Like it, okay, so how does it work? So in this particular case, these are little robots which sit either in the rail or on the rail of your curtains. So I have eyelet curtains, which means that there are holes in in the actual curtain fabric with metal rings in. Um, but it would theoretically also work with tabtop curtains. Or if you've got curtains which sort of slot into a rail that kind of looks like a U-shape, then there are different, slightly different bots for those, um, which are also from SwitchBot. Um, and so this is a little thing that sits on the rail. It's got a motor in and it wheels itself along the rail. Um, and so when you set it up, the first thing you need to do is you have to calibrate it. So you start with the curtains closed and then you have to, you tap the calibrate button and then you, you open the curtain all the way with the app. And then you say, okay, it's all the way open. And then you close the curtain all the way with the app. So it knows how far it needs to go. Um, and obviously depending on the weight of your curtains and so on, it, it may need more power or less power, but that's all stuff that it somehow calculates inside of the app. Um, but it means that whenever, you know, it hits sunset, then my curtains go and uh, the, the motors wheel themselves in from the outside to the inside. I'm looking at a picture of it and it's it's pretty unintrusive. Yeah. Um, so I got the solar panels for two of my curtains. So all of my curtains are actually two curtains and they meet in the middle. Um, and so that means that I need two bots per curtain, which in hindsight was an unfortunate mistake, but there's no way to support a curtain reel in the middle. Um, and also, you know, close your curtain over that. Um, it just wouldn't work. So, you know, I needed two curtains, which means that I have six switch bots uh, running around um, my house because that's just what ended up happening. But I got managed to get two solar panels. Um, and so those are connected by USB-C extension cables and they're just hanging in my window. Um, I could connect the solar panels directly onto the bot itself, but I realized that basically the positioning of where my curtains are when they're open meant that the solar panel would be facing a wall most of the day and would not get a lot of light, <laughs> um, which it seems like a bit of a mistake, but I just bought some USB-C extension cables, some pretty cheap ones, and that works really well. Um, so those are sitting uh, on my on my living room. I've got uh, French doors or uh, window doors, as they're sometimes known, um, out from my living room. And so they're just hanging in there. And that works really well. And uh, both both bots have got 100% battery life, which is brilliant. <laughs> I think it's also interesting that they chose to 
make it part of Homebridge, but not part of HomeKit. You know, it's like, uh, all right, let's make it so the super nerds can use it, but not everybody else. I'm, I'm surprised of that choice. Yeah, me too. And I'm really not sure why they've done that. Um, but at the same time, I would also say for anybody thinking Homebridge, oh God, that, so- that sounds tricky and overly complicated. It's got a lot better over the years. By default, yeah. now it installs with a graphical user interface. Uh, instead of you having to manually edit a JSON file, the vast majority of the things ha- you know, have a, a pretty form to fill out to add your devices. So I've got things like my Logitech Harmony added through there, but I've also got fake devices like timers for my lava lamp. So when I turn my lava lamp on, it turns on a timer for it. That timer automatically turns off eight hours later and it turns off my lava lamp too. Well, I, I do think that it, it is way easier than the first time I used it. I think I was in the terminal to get it going. And yep. now it's like, it just installs so easily. And if you have anything in your house that is automation friendly, but not HomeKit friendly, just about any of that stuff will work through HomeBridge at this point. Yes. Yeah, it does. And it can add extra functionality too, which is great. Steven, you went the, down the HomeBridge rabbit hole, didn't you? Uh, well, I've got uh, a device called the Starling Home. And it it basically just runs like an embedded version of it. All it does is tie my Nest stuff to HomeKit, mm-hmm. but and that's worked really well. But I do have a Raspberry Pi that I got with Homebridge in mind. I just need to find time to get around to it. Yeah, yeah, it's very easy to set up, um, and uh, the Raspberry Pi is a great place for it. I'm also using it for things like my Ring doorbell because uh, it turns out that well, the very few doorbells that you can you can get that does have camera support that you can turn on enough is uh, the Ring peephole camera that that actually fits in my door, um, and I have to be careful about what I can install on my door because I live in an apartment, so I can't just go randomly installing things on the outside of my building. Um, but that works really well, and that you know, and that shows up in the HomeCam app and the Home app, thanks to Homebridge. There's another brand that you've gone in deep with on HomeKit, and that's Acara, A Q A R A. Yeah. Um, explain that a little bit, because I don't think we've ever discussed that on on Mac Power Users. Yeah, I I'm gonna pronounce this Aquara, uh, even though it's not got a U in it. Um, but basically, uh, these are the people who also manufacture Xiaomi products, um, and so on. But they they do their own stuff too, um, and they've got uh, a, a security camera which also works as as one of their hubs with the G2H. But I don't have that. Um, wasn't available in the UK when I was buying these things. It came out shortly after. But the Aquara stuff has one notable feature, which every Mac Power users listener will appreciate having listened to the show and knowing how much money it's previously cost you. The stuff is cheap, which is great. And they have door and window sensors. They've got vibration um, sensors, motion sensors, temperature and humidity sensors. And these are less than $10 each. Um, and the hub can be had for 30 to $40. I think there's a new version to it, the, hu- the hub coming out or is out already, which is a bit more expensive, um, but is powered by micro USB. So win some, lose some instead of it taking over an outlet. Um, but um, these are great because they are insanely cheap compared to other options. And they work over, I believe it's the Zigbee protocol, um, which means that it that you're not connecting each individual door sensor to your Wi-Fi. The door sensor connects to the hub and the hub is on the Wi-Fi. So you only have one device sitting on your Wi-Fi and then it's got its own network, just like the Philips Hue stuff works. Yeah, and this stuff is all available in the US as well as the UK. So yeah. um, I haven't tried any of it, but you know, like I've got a temperature sensor in my house that I paid $50 for like two years ago. 
And when I see how cheap this stuff is in comparison, it just, it makes my heart ache. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm using this for all sorts of things. So I stuck one of their vibration sensors on my chair, uh, on my office chair. So I okay. knew. Wait, wait, wait a second. When I'm sitting vibration. in my chair. Okay. All right. <laughs> because the thing, so I have a Philips Hue motion sensor in my office, um, but All where right. it's positioned, sometimes when I'm sitting here podcasting, I'm not necessarily moving enough for it to know that I'm sitting here and podcasting. So it assumes that I'm not here, which means that then the heating will turn off in my room because the heating in this room is only on if it's less than 20 degrees uh, Celsius and if there's motion in the room. If there's no motion in the room, the heater is not on ever. So I don't want to waste energy. But if there's no motion from the motion sensor, I might still be sitting here. But when I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm, I'm moving my hands a bit. And that means that my chair shuffles around a bit. So I have a motion sensor stuck to my chair. And it's one of the Aquara vibration sensors. Um, and this does things like um, vibration uh, and tilt. And I think there's one other thing in there. And it just appears in HomeKit as a motion sensor. HomeKit doesn't really understand the, the three different things that it can, it can recognize. But it yeah. means that when... When my chair moves, that's considered motion in this room, and therefore the heater will stay on if it's less than 20 degrees. People ask me, why are you making a whole podcast about automation? And I just want everybody to know, my co-host figured out a way to put a vibration sensor on her chair to keep her heater running. <laughs> I don't and like getting that cold. that is my answer. <laughs> that is my answer. I don't like I, getting cold, but I, I don't that, like Rose. wasting energy. Uh, every. Every time I talk to you, like one of these little things just drops out somewhere. Oh, by the way, I put a vibration sensor on the bottom of my chair. It's ingenious. I love it. I put a flood sensor in my dehumidifier because my dehumidifier's auto shutoff is too high and you end up spilling water. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yes, I'm that uh, kind of nerd. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And that's why we love you. That is exactly why. Um Anyway, uh, so Rose's ongoing uh, <laughs> home kit. I, I just love hearing about it. Um, it is it is fun using home kit stuff. When you don't have a bunch of people in your house that are, are non-nerds, it, it makes it even easier to do stuff like that. But but that that's really smart, um, adding a vibration sensor to your chair. And I'm thinking about what I could do with that. You know, I've tried, while I've set everything up with, you know, the focus of this is my place and I'm the one that lives here. I've also thought about, you know, what if, I don't know, for example, my motion sensors go offline um, or something like that. Um, or um, I have had it before uh, where I've had, I was having network issues for a while after I moved in. It all appears to have been sorted out thanks to the addition of uh, my Eero and uh, getting the actual socket on the wall replaced by the, by the, the internet company. Um um, but um, for a while, I was having issues where my internet would randomly go offline. And of course, if things aren't working right, if your network's not working right, then that means that your your home hub, which would either be one of the HomePods, HomePod Mini, or an Apple TV, that's not working right either. So things like you walking in front of a motion sensor doesn't necessarily actually turn on the lights uh, when you would expect it to. And so I have got I've got these uh, four button Philips Hue uh, switches, and I've just put one of these over every single light switch. Uh, so all yeah. of my light switches, except the, the kitchen and the bathroom, um, because those are uh, non-standard bulbs, are Hue bulbs. And I've just put these four button switches over every single light switch. So if you walk into a room and it's dark, you can press the button and turn on the lights or the, the, the middle two buttons, increase brightness, decrease brightness, and the bottom button, of course, turns things off. But I've, I've integrated them with HomeKit. So if you press and hold the bottom button, then it turns off all of the lights and the heaters in that room. 
um, and things like that. And, you know, I've got an acquire button by the door where I can press it on the way out and it'll pause anything that's playing to the home pods, turn off the TV, turn off the lights, turn off the heaters and everything so that I can press one button on the way out and I know the things are off that should be off. And then when I come back, certain things automatically turn on. Last home automation question. We haven't had a guest on for a while that uses a Logitech Harmony remote. That used to be a bigger thing than it is now, but um, I know it's still a thing. Uh, explain what it is and how you're using it. Well, uh, first thing that I should probably start with, I have a 10-year-old Samsung television that is not a smart television. It has HDMI ports on it, but that's pretty much as smart as it gets. Uh, so if you have a smart television, then the, the Logitech Harmony may make less sense. But essentially, it is a universal remote um, that can also integrate with things like Philips Hue. Um, and, and some other items. So I have it, I have, um, activities set up. Um, so for example, I, if I press the Apple TV activity, then it will set my lights to one light level, um, and color. But if I press the Nintendo switch activity, it will set my lights to another light level and color. And then it will turn on my TV and automatically switch the input to that device. So it'll switch from HDMI one to HDMI two, for example. Um, and so it, basically simplifies things. And I've added this via Homebridge as well. So I can say, hello, Apple lady, turn on the TV. And it will turn on the TV, which also turning on the TV automatically pauses what's playing to the HomePod, um, which works really, really well. So I'm keeping my usage of this fairly basic. It is great to have a sort of visual index of channels um, uh, for the actual TV, though I'm rarely watching normal TV. Um, I tend to be watching either Plex or Netflix or Disney Plus. Um, and I'm most of the time I'm using the Apple TV. So it just defaults to the Apple TV. But if I want to, you know, turn on my Nintendo Switch, then I've got a button for that too. And it's really easy. I don't need to remember which input is which device, uh, which, you know, of course can be a bit tricky when you've got multiple inputs and multiple devices. Yeah, and this is one of the best cases for Homebridge. Like, if you want to automate managing your TV between multiple inputs, um, you get Homebridge, and you can even do it through HomeKit, which is really nice. Yeah, yeah. So my TV now appears in HomeKit, um, and in the Home app, um, I can if I tap and hold on it, then instead of it just turning on, I can choose which of my Logitech Harmony scenes I want to use. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by DevonThink. Go to devontechnologies.com slash MPU to get organized and save 10%. DevonThink is the flagship product from Devon Technologies to unleash your creativity. DevonThink is the most professional document and information management application for the Mac. It's the one place for storing all your documents, snippets, bookmarks, and working with them. The integrated artificial intelligence assists you with filing and research, while the extensive search language and advanced Boolean operators help you out as well. DevonThink features a flexible sync system that supports many cloud services or lets you synchronize over the local network too with everything securely encrypted. This gives you the choice of however syncing works best for you and complete control over the syncing process. DevonThink has smart rules and flexible reminders that let you automate all parts of your workflow and delegate boring repeating tasks. Let DevonThink automatically organize your data with rules you define. And I can tell you, those rules are powerful. DevonThink's AppleScript dictionary is one of the largest on the Mac. There's no part of DevonThink that can't be automated. 
Extend DevonThanks functionality with your own commands by adding them in its scripting menu. Even templates can have scripts inside and you can set up new documents with data from placeholders or inserted by your own AppleScript code. And of course, there's so much more from the iOS companion app to emailing archive, scanning, and even an embedded web server for sharing your data securely with your team. One of my favorite features is the amazing OCR it performs on all documents in my DevonThink library. There are several areas of my life that require a lot of thinking and research. Uh, this applies in the law practice, but it also applies to the Max Sparky research. And for all of those areas, I use a DevonThink library where I can throw in snippets of text and PDFs and any other documentation that I come across in relation to an issue. Then I just tap into that brain trust of DevonThink anytime I need to research it. Some of my libraries include uh, legal concepts, like I do a lot of work on trade secret law, and I have a whole DevonThink library dedicated to all the research I've done on that. I just go in there anytime I need. It goes through the cases that I need to see, the statutes, and helps me prepare briefs and make arguments better. If you have a lot of documents to organize and sort, or if you want help with that research like I use, then DevonThink is for you. Another good case for DevonThink is if you love automation, because this application embraces automation in a way that no other application I use does. You can get 10% off DevonThink 3 or upgrade to it right now. This new version 3 is really nice. If you haven't seen it yet, you should definitely check it out. Just go to devontechnologies.com slash MPU. That's devontechnologies.com slash MPU to get that 10% off. Our thanks to Devon Technologies for their support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. One thing we like to do with our guests uh, towards the end of our shows is to hit on some favorite apps and services that maybe haven't gotten a mention already. I know we've talked about a lot of stuff, but I know you mm-hmm. are a fan of a lot of stuff. So what comes to I, mind uh... for you? Well, uh, one of the things that definitely comes to mind is Integromat. Um, And this is partially because I've been playing with this quite a bit today. Um, But Integromat is an an online web automation service, kind of like uh, Zapier or If This Then That. Um, It's more similar to Zapier in that it supports many of the same platforms, but it's cheaper and has things like branching and is visual. Well, my chief complaints about Zapier is that it feels a bit tricky to manage at times, whereas Integromat feels more fluid. Um, And so I'm slowly shifting some things over from Zapier to Integromat, but at the same time, I'm not planning on giving up with Zapier at all because it works very well. But Integromat, I find, is better. And especially the branching um, and the automatic iteration through, you know, multiple elements in a JSON or something like that works extremely well. So I have it set up to integrate you know, between WordPress and Airtable. Um, so whenever I add a record to Airtable, then it can, you know, generate an update in WordPress for me automatically and things like that. And this fits in the category of what we call cloud-based automation tools, where if you have online accounts, it can automate between them in the cloud, which is kind of awesome. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, another thing that uh, I love, um, which is, also kind of cloud-based, but it's personal cloud-based, is Pi-hole. Um, And this is something I'm running on my Raspberry Pi, but the idea is Pi-hole blocks adverts on your network. 
Um, now, it, when I say block ad votes on your network, it doesn't mean you will never see a YouTube or an Instagram ad again, because certain websites serve up the adverts from exactly the same place as the content, which means that you can't really um, differentiate between them. So you'll still need something like uBlock Origin or OneBlocker to block those. Um, but I love PyHall. It's free. And I set it up on my Raspberry Pi and it's running there alongside Homebridge. And it works really, really well. So I see way fewer adverts on the internet and I just don't have to think about it anymore. Um, and I did manage, of course, to integrate it with my my smart home through Homebridge. But that's a very unnecessary step for most people. Uh, one of the uh, recommended apps you were talking about is Bobby. Tell us about that one. Yeah, so Bobby is just a cute little squirrel who tracks your subscriptions. Uh, so subscriptions to me are very much like, uh, you know, nuts or squirrel berries and then you forget about them until oh whoops yes i didn't mean to pay for another year of this but i just did so i guess that's money's gone if i put it in bobby then bobby will notify me before that happens and it can give me summaries of uh, outgoing costs what i love is it supports multiple currencies so of course some services are paid for in us dollars because that's what you know, the company does. Um, and I, I love the fact that I see the price in US dollars, whereas other applications I've tried over the years have said, but everything's just going to be in pounds because your your location is set to the United Kingdom or everything's in euros. And that never worked for me. Uh, so I love Bobby. It's very simple and it's pretty, but it works very, very well. Yeah, for years I've been doing this with a number spreadsheet, but this is a really nice. I ha- I wasn't aware of this app until you you uh, put it in the notes here, and I think I may have to give it a try. Yeah, it was very affordable. I think it is five dollars as a one time purchase, um, and I love the fact it's got all sorts of different icons, and you can assign colors to each subscription and so on as well. But also, you can you know just set everything up yourself, or and it supports directly things like Spotify and Netflix and all of your standard outgoing expenses. Stephen, how do you track all your subscriptions? Every once in a while, I open the app store and see what's in there. <laughs> yeah, I get it. And, you I know, I, this is a, I have put this in Insta paper. This is something for me to check out. Yeah, definitely. Any other apps that you particularly like people may not be aware of? Well, I mean, I'm going to have to give a shout out to the Stream Deck, of course, because I love my Stream Deck. It's not a, well, it is an app, but it's also a piece of hardware that so you could use the iPhone version. Um, but that is something that has massively increased my productivity just because I can say, okay, I'm in my podcasting profile now, or I, it's actually my recording profile and I tap on the automators uh, artwork or the nested folders artwork or the iOS today artwork or the generic podcasting ad, uh, artwork for I'm a guest on another fabulous podcast, like my power users. Um, and then it gives me, you know, the apps that I need for that and, you know, things that I'm going to need and opens OmniFocus so that I can see, oh, yeah, and before the show, I was going to do that um, and so on just to uh, make my life much easier. I, I learned a lesson about my stream deck this week and my dog. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, the, the dog sleeps under the table under my desk when I'm working and I was moving stuff around. I had unplugged my stream deck temporarily and I just let the cord fall behind it. And she has never touched any of the cords. There's so many cords under my desk. I mean, uh, and she's just never shown any interest in them. But this one was, I guess, all the way down to the ground. And then when I pulled it back up, the USB plug was hanging by just the thread of mm-hmm. the threaded cable. There, there was no, uh, there was no copper in any in like connecting it. And what I learned was, if you have the large size Stream Deck, it's a replaceable cable. Because I, I pulled it out and I went, damn. 
that dog just cost me like 150 bucks, you know, because I'm going to have to replace the stream deck. But once I took it apart, you could actually just yank the cable out and put a new one in. So I was saved by it. But apparently after raising this on Twitter, all the other ones do not have a replaceable cable. No, I've got the medium size, which works really well for me. But I also do not own a dog, especially not one that chews cables. So yeah. I have to keep that in mind if I'm adopting in the future. I don't know. I mean, she's never done it before, not done it since, but she she liked that Stream Deck cable. Well, maybe somebody had secretly, you know, wrapped it in jerky. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, any other apps that you uh, you use all the time that nobody may have heard of? Uh, well, I mean, Dark Noise, I'm hoping people will, will have heard of. But one of the features I love about Dark Noise, which is a, a white slash background noise application, is it has a dark lab section in the settings. And you can toggle on a feature which will allow you to mix it with other audio, like podcasts and music. And this has been really great while I'm working because, um, you know, it, the, I've, I've been at home, I'm on my own, um, and it's nice to have some background noise. Um, but at the same time, I like listening to my music, but I don't want just music, but I don't want just background noise. And so dark noise allows me to, to mix something like office chatter at a very low volume with you know, my regular music or a podcast while I'm working, um, which is really nice and much more like being back in the office. Um, and I tend to be doing, have that playing while I'm in Nova uh, editing uh, code, which uh, is an application by Panic. Great application. I really love Nova. I would uh, second nomination for Dark Noise and, and add, as somebody who has tinnitus, it's one of the few iPhone apps that I run on my M1 Mac all the time. I mean, they, they embraced the Mac version, so you can you can run the iPhone version on your Mac if you have Apple Silicon, and it's just as good on the Mac as it is on the iPhone and iPad. Also very automation-friendly, by the way. Now I want an M1 Mac, David. <laughs> so I was really disappointed. A lot of the apps I was hoping didn't make didn't make it over, but that's one that did, and, and I run that one all the time. Well, Rose, I am so happy with all the things you're doing, you know, over the last couple of years, you've really kind of shown up in the Apple, you know, podcast land of, of contributors. You've written some books. You did a book on shortcuts that was really good for um, the gang over at Take Control. You've got, we'll put a link for that in the show notes. You've also got this, this new show you're doing with Micah over at the Twit Network and nested folders as well as automators we're going to put links to all that stuff but if someone out there wants to follow the stuff you're doing where should they go uh well the best place is probably rosemaryorchard.com or at rosemaryorchard on twitter where uh, there should be links to everything uh, that i do well we um thank you so much for coming on the show also thanks for all the help rose is one of is the primary person that keeps the talk.macpowerusers.com working. If if there's a reason it works, it's because of Rose. If there's a reason it's broken, it's probably because of me. So <laughs> just so we're all clear on that. Uh, well, I did we, break we it appreci- the other day doing updates. It took a little longer ah, to get it back okay. online than I had intended, unfortunately. <laughs> it's okay. It happens. It's okay. Uh, but, but we really appreciate it. And all of us in the forums really appreciate all the hard work you do to keep it a friendly place for everybody to enjoy and, uh, Anyway, so uh, gang, go check out Rose's all of her podcasts, her rosemaryorchard.com. She's she's continues to put out great little fun automation ideas like sticking a motion sensor to the bottom of her chair. That's that's just one little bit for me. It makes me <laughs> makes me giggle. Okay, um 
We are the Mac Power Users. You can find us over at relay.fm slash MPU. Our sponsors this week are Smile, Pingdom, Indeed, and Devon Technologies. Uh, for more Power Users today, Rosemary and I are going to do an intervention with Steven and the large size iPhone. That's all I'm going to tell you. It's going to be fun. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. <laughs>